Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 20, Richard II, Richard II. This is a podcast where we go through the works of Shakespeare in chronological order, and sometimes we take detours into his influences and the people he influenced. But this time we're doing Shakespeare's second historical quadrology. We made a joke the last time about how with Henry VI, Shakespeare did the first bit last, just like George Lucas. Here we have an even more George Lucas move. Shakespeare did the prequel series after the original series. Sophie, what is your relationship? I'm going to assume you don't have much of a relationship to Richard II. What is your relationship to Shakespeare's prequel historical quadrology, which involves Richard II, Henry IV, Part One and Part Two, and then Henry V? I mean, nowadays, I kind of have a relationship now by accident. Um, again, it's David Tennant. Um, David Tennant is going into um, Richard II um, production um, with the Royal British uh, Shakespeare Company, I believe they're called, um, relatively soon. Um, like, there was an interview available on YouTube, like, relatively recently. And we are um, saying this in the 23rd of July. So maybe it will be done and gone by the time this comes out. I mean, that is entirely possible, yeah. So there's that. Uh, aside from that, no, no relationship with Richard II. Like, even the... My first relationship isn't even a relationship. I just know about a person that does the thing. That's all. That is literally it. Certain. This is not one of Shakespeare's... Uh, it is one of Shakespeare's hidden gems. That is the best anyone can say for it. It's one of those plays where if you say, oh, Shakespeare's Richard II, at most someone will say, do you mean Richard III? Not many. This is not one of his most well-known. My connection to Richard II comes from the BBC did a TV series called The Hollow Crown, which is them going through all of Shakespeare's history plays in order. And for Richard II, they had Ben Winshaw, pretty boy twink Ben Winshaw, playing Richard II. Truly, truly a beauty of a man playing a beauty of a king. I don't know if that makes sense. Does it make sense, Sophie? I mean, it makes sense with the context of having read the the. Bleh, the play, but um, if I had not, I would have been very confused. Mm, yes, uh-huh. but having read the play, do you think that Patrick Stewart makes a good John of Gaunt? Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, no, no, no. This, that, that's pretty much perfect uh, casting. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, perfect casting. No, no, no. It's ten out of ten. And I did mention that, uh, historically speaking, and even today, this is not one of Shakespeare's best plays. By the end of this podcast, I hope that you will go off and actually read it or watch it, because this is worth reading and watching. I will say that, historically, this has never been one of his most popular. We ha- I have 
I have a collection of historical criticism of Shakespeare called Shakespeare the Critical Heritage. And there are just a lot of damning with faint praise of this play. Or not even damning with faint praise, just saying, oh, this is not that good. We have Samuel Johnson in 1765 saying, This play is one of those which Shakespeare has apparently revised. But, as success in works of invention is not always proportionate to labour, it is not finished at last with the happy force of some other of his tragedies, nor can much be said to affect the passions or enlarge the understanding. So essentially they're saying Shakespeare must have worked hard on this. It's not very good, though. (laughs) Ah, we have Charles Gilden in 1721 saying... I can see no reason why he made the choice of the most despicable character of all our kings, unless it was for the sake of two or three fine descriptions and some agreeable topics or commonplaces. That's all this thing has. Two or three nice descriptions in it. Is that a low, is that a low score, Sophie? Oh, that is a low score. Whether it's deserved is interesting. This is, sometimes with Shakespeare, you can come to it and think, oh, this has been overhyped. It's difficult to get into the spirit of it. And knowing this one, the history of reception has either been just not acknowledging it or not really, uh, well, just damning it with faint praise, essentially. Does it deserve that? Let's get into it. One. Here's the summary of Act One. King Richard II is on the throne, and two nobles have come to him to settle a beef between the two of them. One is called Malbury, the Duke of Norfolk, and the other is called Bolingbroke, the Earl of Derby. Now, reader, Bolingbroke will eventually become King Henry IV, so pay attention to him. Bolingbroke is the important character here. Bolingbroke accuses Malbury of treason. They both want a trial by combat, a duel. Ah, and King Richard reluctantly agrees to let them fight each other. Ah, but does he? Right as the duel between Bolingbroke and Malbury is about to start, the king calls it off and banishes the two nobles from England. Will this come to bite Richard in the ass? Who cares? The king needs to run off and fight the Irish right now. Did I miss anything, Sophie? No. Like, this is one of those plays that that has a lot of small things happen that are, in theory, actually quite important. um, But in plot-wise, nothing much happens. It is... uh... I mean, what in the sense of nothing much happens, what do you mean by that? Because uh, uh, what do you think is the central action of this that is so small? I mean, like, it's... I hate to break it down like this, but this is a property dispute play. Ah, just as John of Gaunt <laughs> says, Landlord of England are ye, not king. That's a brilliant line. It is a brilliant line, like 100%. There are a couple of brilliant and nice lines in this play. But yeah, for me, um, 
Uh, okay, like I was about to say, if the queen, if the king didn't do X, this play wouldn't have happened. Um, but that is kind of the point in it, um, because it is in theory. Uh, would you call this a his? Would you call this a historical tragedy or? It is a historical tragedy because it, it's it's about history and the king dies, pretty much yeah. as historical as you can get. Yeah, you're not wrong, but like for me, um, the categorizing of history plays um, as history plays is fascinating to me in that they sometimes have to have a subgenre like tragedy. It tends to be tragedy because, you know, nine times out of ten, they die at the end, which is what happens when you're a historical figure. You do, in fact, die. Um, and even if you're alive, you, you die at the end anyway, because that is how life works while you know fictional characters tend to have a happy ending or at least an ending that lets them in theory um live on in the minds of the readers or the audience right um that's the unfortunate thing about history that it, the, the happy ending very much depends on where you end it like exactly. king henry v technically it has a happy ending we beat the bloody french However, we know that in Henry the Sixth, everything's going to turn right down the drain. Oof, sucks. But yeah, so um, for me, when I have to eventually call a historical play a historical tragedy because the main character dies, it feels a little disingenuous, or at least a little too simplified, because of course they're going to die. Um, they're dead already when the play was written. Um, unless, as you say, the play is finished at a happy ending. So um, I suppose there is a difference between dying in your victory, surrounded by all your friends, and dying after one of your nobles has dethroned you and tossed you in prison, being killed by one of his wink-wink, nudge-nudge assassins. Yeah. I have spoiled the ending of the play. I hope the reader didn't think that Richard would get out alive. We've been we've been foreshadowing it for the last like ten minutes. It's fine. Um, so yeah, like I was about to say, this play wouldn't have happened if basically our Richie wasn't an idiot. Oh no, sorry, Henry was it Henry Richard Richard the second? I'm going insane. Um, if our dear little Richie wasn't an idiot and took a person's land. Like, if if he hadn't created that land dispute, he probably would have just fucked off and come back and been grumpy about it, but just let bygones be bygones. So I guess it is that hubris that falls, that creates his downfall. Although, um, is it hubris or is it um, a little bit like the... Um, you know, the previous play where the prince wanted to be a scholar and was just sunshine and rainbows in the dumbest way. Um, was Richard II um, dumb in the hubris way or um, cuckoo lander way or um, like just just not quite clever enough kind of way? I remember that I, th I think it was William Hazlitt and he was talking about either Henry VI or Richard II. But he was, he was saying that the genius of Shakespeare is that he can take a character which is quite clearly of the same type. He has two characters of the same type. And for Richard II and Henry VI, these are both ineffective sort of effeminate kings. 
but he still manages to make them that character type, but in two entirely separate ways. For Henry VI, as you say, he's sort of a head in the clouds, I'd rather be a priest sort of guy. But Richard II, he's more just sort of a guy who likes spending time around with his guy friends. He's sort of a guy who likes pleasure. He doesn't like fighting, really. I mean, he does like fighting. He goes off to fight the Irish. But it, the reason why Richard II is a failure of a king is not because he's too religious. Uh, he, he's not too good for this world. He's very much a sort of mm, the, the CEO who doesn't want to do the work and will just rather take credit for other people's work. He, to me, seems like a king that is very like of the tapestry. So he sees himself as the king that is in a tapestry with, you know, um, with a gold ring um, behind his head. He is pointing elegantly at his subjects um the the fields are green and full of flowers and fruit um below him and he is he is king and all is right in the world and therefore whatever he does it is right with the world um which is not what happens when you create a land dispute with people of mortal like whims and wants and hang-ups actually a little bit because it's also about inheritance as well because that's the whole point of land disputes isn't it um i should just clarify the land dispute we're talking about this happens in the second act effectively yeah. but what happens is that i mentioned in the summary that bolingbroke and malbury they are both banished from the land now bolingbroke he is the son of john of gaunt and john of gaunt is the duke of lancaster now, the Duke of Lancaster, he dies when he learns that his son's been exiled. He dies of grief. Now, Richard II said, oh, goody, this guy's dead. I'm going to sell all his property and use this money to fund my wars in Ireland. That is the land dispute. Bolingbroke says he comes back to England out of exile and says, no, this is my land. I inherited it from my father. You should not be selling my stuff. That's the land dispute. But yeah, so um, I'm so hung up on that land dispute because I found scene one exceptionally, not, not boring, but like vaguely confusing. I will say that part of what makes it confusing, and sometimes the confusing thing in Shakespeare is just he, he leaves stuff out or he doesn't express things clearly. In this one, I feel there's a thematic reason why a very key piece of information is left out. It is that in Shakespeare's time and to Shakespeare's audience, there's a fact that they would have known, which is that King Richard had some role to play in getting the Duke of Gloucester killed. There was the idea that Duke, that the King Richard ordered or wanted the Duke of Gloucester killed, and that is one of the things in this part that Bolingbroke is accusing Mowbray of. So that's one of the things. So... And Mowbray, he can't fully deny and he can't fully uh, say that he didn't kill uh, the Duke of Gloucester. And he can't fully speak about what he did because that would be implicating the king. And uh, Bolingbroke, he can't mention too explicitly what's going on with the Duke of Gloucester because that also will be implicating the king. So that is perhaps a subtext that would have made this scene more interesting if a modern audience had that information in mind. Now, mo modern historians would say that probably King Richard had nothing to do with that, but Shakespeare's audience would have assumed that. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I actually, before I read the play, I spoiled the play to myself by looking at uh, Richard II, um, No Fear Shakespeare, um, Notes on Spark Notes, and I also looked at the Richard II um, Wikipedia page, and, um, and, and also I watched the YouTube um, available iteration involving Ian McKellen, um and that he did in 1976 or something um and like in every single iteration they made it somewhat clear um like in the youtube um one they made it they, uh, they started the play with a narrator going hey by the way richard ii had this guy murdered and um which thank you for the clarification, but the play itself just never says it outright. And I sometimes I don't understand subtext. I'm sometimes I, I would like a blunt instrument to my face face going like, please, this is the guy that did the murder, you know, you know. Um, and I, I would say that it does. It does say it outright, but only at the very end. I think only when Richard II, he's off the throne. I think one of the characters does mention, oh, he killed he killed Gloucester. It's only at that point that they are the characters feel emboldened enough to say that the king committed murder. Okay, I maybe I missed that part because you know as as the play goes on, I just lose track of taking notes. But yeah, um, so Act One, Scene One, it's the argument um, full of words going, "You killed the person. No, I didn't. My honor is disturbed." A, I would like to, all right, we fight now, we fight. Um, scene two, Duchess of Glo um, Gloucester, I, I did write down, um, we have another temptress. Like, it seems like, um, again, Shakespeare seems to have a love of tempting women and not like, you know, tempting as in like physically, um, romantically tempting, but a person, a woman that goes, hey, Seize power. Seize. I think specifically the Duchess of Gloucester is saying the king, well, she, she doesn't say it outright, but the king killed my husband, the Duke of Gloucester, John of Gaunt, be a man and kill the, or take revenge. She doesn't say, for obvious reasons, doesn't say kill the king, but, you know, take revenge. That's what she's telling him to do. Which, and you say temptress. I'd say that there is perhaps a more, un, it's slightly understandable, Take revenge on the person who killed my husband? Yeah, but um, it is, with the knowledge that it was probably Richard II, um, it's always a woman that goes, why don't you transgress against the status quo? At least that does seem to be the case. Um, it's not often that you get a dude against a dude going, eh, hey, bro to bro, want to do something, something sus? Um, as Isn't that to... the entirety of Julius Caesar? A bunch of guys getting together, hey, why don't we kill this guy? Which hasn't happened yet, um, okay. at least um, for now. But so far of the plays that we have seen, um, it is often the women that are going, let's transgress, let's um, push the status quo into uh, anti-status quo, I'm going insane. Um and her her plea is very good though um because 
what do you okay um i know we never really touch as much on theme in plays but um this feels like a play where you have to actually talk a little bit about theme because of the whole is the king right or wrong subtext we we certainly yeah, it is certainly a play where even if it does show the king in some good lights it it also makes sure to show him in very awful lights as well uh, the most obvious part is where john of gaunt's dead and he's and the king is almost oh goody he's dead let's take his stuff it's very difficult for a reader to say oh i, I think this is a good guy no he's he's a monster or an asshole at the very least at the very but in, least but in this uh, Act 1, Scene 2, we get John of Gaunt, and John of Gaunt, he's like an old guy. He's a, he's old, he's 50 or something like that, but he is, that's old for the time. But he is meant to be an incredibly wise person. And he is trying his best to say, I shouldn't kill... So Gaunt essentially, so, you know... Uh, Gaunt is trying his best not to be tempted, as you say, by this woman saying, take revenge on the king for killing the Duke of Gloucester. But even Gaunt, he has to accept, even subtly, that the king is probably guilty and is probably a bit of a wrong-in. And then he, he even says, his deputy anointed in his sight hath caused his death. So he does accept that Richard caused Gloucester's death. The witch, if wrongfully. So the only question in John of Gaunt's mind is whether or not the murder was justified or not. He accepts that the king probably killed this guy. So we, we do get the sense that John of Gaunt, wise guy, the only thing that's stopping him railing against the king is the fact that this is the king. As a person, the king is probably a wrong'un. The only thing protecting him is his kingship. Yes. Um, and I will say, scene three, where the, the, the duel is happening, um, I would, the, another thing that confu confused me was why is the accuser getting such a light sentence and why is the accused um, you know, have faces a lifetime of of banishment, um, which and his banishment speech is actually really good. Um, a heavy sentence, my most sovereign liege, and all unlooked for from your highness's mouth. A dearer merit, not so deep a maim, as to be cast forth in the common ear, have I deserved at your highness's hands. The language I have learned these forty years, my native English, now I must forego. And now my tongue's use is to me no more than an unstringed viol or a harp or like a cunning instrument cased up or being open put into his hands that knows no touch to tune the harmony. Within my mouth you have engalled my tongue, doubly portcullist with my teeth and lips and dull unfeeling barren England and dull unfeeling barren ignorance is made my jailer to attend on me. I am too old to fawn upon a nurse, too far in years to be a pupil now. What is thy sentence then but speechless death, which robs my tongue from breathing native breath? Um, as while well, after, and then Thomas Mowbray says, okay, I'm a, I'm a go. I'm, I'm a sad boy. Um, I mean, that is, I mean, you no, know, just on a technical level, this, 
that I think I've quoted this before where Borges says, when you think of Shakespeare, you think of a crowd. He gives even the most minor characters these flashes or even these constant shines of individual character. And the, Mowbray, the only thing he needs to do in this plot is be the person that Bolingbroke is against and then he gets banished. Mowbray does not show up again after this point. And yet Shakespeare gives him this incredibly moving contemplation of what it means to be exiled in a foreign land. It means that I cannot use my mother tongue ever again in any useful way. You were saying that you don't know why Mowbray was given a life sentence, whereas Bolingbroke was only given a bit... Uh, I don't know the history of this. Maybe there's a more obvious reason in the scholarship of this. But I would say that maybe it's that King... I'm assu- uh, I may be misremembering the, uh, the vision of history that Shakespeare has. But the idea is that King Richard had Mowbray kill Duke of Gloucester. Now, even though Mowbray is the ally of King Richard, you don't particularly want your hired assassin next to you for too long. You don't want him coming back. You don't want him raising up any quarrels by coming back. So you say, I want my weapon as far away from me as possible. I want my assassin exiled for all time. And this is sort of like what happens at the end of the play, where Bolingbroke has essentially his weapon, which is a guy called Exeter, Exton, where Exton kills Richard II on behalf of Bolingbroke. And Bolingbroke says, I exile you because just because you've hired an assassin doesn't particularly mean you want that assassin anywhere near you. I mean, then, like, give him a faraway land um, away from the capital where you can probably have him assassinated or placed in a war in Ireland in the worst possible um, area and abandon him to get... I mean, then again, there is... uh, There's also the fact that you don't particularly maybe want them inside of your country too much because they might start using their armies and getting other people's armies to fight against you. Yeah. It's just that, for me, like, if you're going to conspire with someone, you either kill them outright immediately so they don't bother you or you keep them happy so they keep looking... You know, they keep... There's also perhaps the fact that maybe Richard is not as good at real politic as he thinks he is. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, um, the yeah Henry has a beautiful line for his dad. Oh, thou the earthly author of my blood, whose youthful spirit in me regenerate doth with a twofold vigor lift me up to reach at victory above my head. That is so cute. It just makes you think of like a little boy being raised up by his dad. Um, Add proof unto mine armor with thy prayers. And with thy blessing, steal my lance's point that it may enter Mowbray's waxen coat and furbish new the J- the name of John there, and furbish uh, and furbish new the name of John Agaunt, even in the lusty behavior of his son. Um, yeah, no, it's it's. I really liked that line. It's lovely. Um, and then eventually that scene ends with uh, Henry. Uh, banished for, at first 10, um, lowered to 6 because John of Gaunt looked sad. And uh, Mowbray continues being banished for life. And then scene 4, finally, we get the king being himself in the not-so-tapestry, not-so-wavy-hand-pointing kind of way, but more of a 
a dude, a dude bro. I, I think. Well, you say dude bro. In what sense? Do you just mean he's with his lads? Now, I, his lads, I will give you their names. And these are real people. So this is... Shakespeare had no choice but to give Richard's favourites these names. Bushy, Baggett, and Green. Bushy, Baggett, and Green. They sound like children's book characters. They do. We have here my favourites. Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, but yeah, like, um, so Duke of Armel, I don't know which one he is. Um, uh, like... He's not one of them. He's the Duke of York's son. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, Duke of Armel, also don't know how to really pronounce that. But and it's like, hey, so he's finally left. Um, he said goodbye so many times, like so many times that you would think that the more he said it, the more his sentence would shorten. Like, oh, wow, if not for the wind hitting my eye just right, there would have been no tears from me. But thankfully, like with a little bit of dust and wind, I got a good tear in and it worked out. God, just, ah, it was a, it was a time. I do like this because, you know, later on in the play, I mean, th this interaction with the King and Ormel just doesn't need to be there. It's only here because in the fifth act, Ormel is going to join a conspiracy to try to kill Bolingbroke, the new king. Yeah, which is... Like, we will get into that when that um, happens. Yeah. But yeah, King Richard II, he, is, he replies, He is our cousin, cousin, but tis doubt when time shall call him home from banishment whether our kinsmen come to see his friends. Ourself and Bushy, Baggett here, and Green observed his courtship to the common people. How he did seem to dive into their hearts with humble and familiar courtesy. What reverence he did throw away on slaves, wooing poor craftsmen with the craft of smiles and patient underbearing of his fortune, as twere to banish their effects with him. Um, he keeps saying um, nice things that he did to um, commoners that are beneath it's like him. It's, it's, and this may be dating this podcast. It's like, you know how, uh, what's, what's the Biden's first name? Joseph? John? Joe? Yeah, what? Joe. Joe. Okay, Joe. Joseph Biden. That's how we call him. It's like how he released a campaign video, which was just quotes from Marjorie Taylor Greene, the ultra right wing Republican. But it's her saying, oh, he wants to uh, pay for education. He wants to pay for uh, people's uh, health care. He wants to finish what Franklin Delano Roosevelt started. So it is her saying things that in her mind are awful things, but which all the listeners to Joe Biden's uh, advertisement would think are the best things in the world. So that's basically what's happening here. Richard II is saying, oh, he's so, Bolingbroke is so kind to the people. He's so nice to them. He treats them like human beings, the arsehole. Yeah. But the audience is thinking, oh, sounds like a nice guy. Yeah, and also, as were our England in reversion, his and he, our subjects, next degree in hope. So, um, like, in my mind, like, what kind of uh tapestried dude that is also this dude bro um is king richard like what is the person behind the mask i don't like using this character as a reference but it's like is he a draco malfoy that does he say this with a pouty lip um and a scowl and just generally unhappily 
or does he say it with a smile and he's like oh that silly boy yeah that's just this is just what he gets you know for being a little too much like me you know like so what is so if you're a director like the author is dead you do what you want with king richard ii is he a pouty is he entitled is he malicious um but for me like doing this podcast i just want to like dig up shakespeare and shake his little neck and go please tell me which one what was your intention here um, maybe sophie that's the ambiguity he brings to every character uh, and just to know that shakespeare does come down on this i mean we can all accept he's an asshole what kind of asshole uh, depends on our reading of it and in fact, the very last lines of Act One really show that it's not merely that he's a bit whimsical, he's a bit uh, too uh, flip-floppy. Here we have him. He's heard that John of Gaunt has taken ill. And it's like, now put it to God in the physician's mind to help him to his grave immediately. The lining of his coffers shall make coats to deck our soldiers for these Irish wars. Come, gentlemen, let's all go visit him. Pray God we may make haste and come too late. Now that is, that is, that almost feels too blunt. Like, uh, how do we show this guy's awful? Oh, have him begging for the death of a nice old man. Uh, so, but yeah, the thing is, like, I can kind of still accept him as a smiling, um, ben benevolent with quotation marks heavily implied, um, kind of man, um, or a kind of king, anyway, because he's king. He is like literally the this the agent of God on earth for England, anyway. I will I will say that that what you just gave there, saying that he well, you could accept he's a smiling guy because he is king. That is pretty much the only argument anyone else in the play gives in his favour. Uh, because essentially everyone in the play, even the people who are supporting him as king, everyone agrees he's a monster, he's an arsehole, he shouldn't be in power. But ev but his supporters at most can say, uh, but he is king. We can't go against the king. The only thing protecting him is the fact that he is king. <laughs> Wise old dying John of Gaunt tries to rouse some sense into King Richard, but King Richard is having none of it. When John of Gaunt buys the farm, King Richard rushes to sell John of Gaunt's house. He needs money to fight those rebelling, revolting Irish. The Queen feels something's going to go wrong, and it does go wrong because Bolingbroke comes running back into England and he has a lot of nobles on his side because Bolingbroke wants to take back the land of Lancaster, which his father left to him and which Richard is doing his best to sell all of. Did I miss anything, Sophie? Nope. Any first thoughts on this? Um... Like most of my thoughts on um, Act Two kind of happened like at the very start, where I'm just going, "Why are you doing this, you dumb boy king?" Um, and 
like aside from nothing like you know the the scene one has a fantastic um speech by john of gaunt which is why um sir patrick being able to do this 10 out of 10 um yeah the, are you talking about the famous septed isle speech yes i believe so ah this this royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall, or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings. Okay, beautiful speech. I will say teeming womb. That is a quite uh, mm, a bit of an ick line there for me i agree it's a bit of an ick for me too uh it, it just comes to mind um uh princess mononoke for me when um the the curses the cursed um creatures have like awful awful tentacles coming out of their wounds and it's like ah now stop please, please. and it's it's also like in a if you want to show that your crime movie is really hardcore and gritty, you have a dead woman there, and then as you're putting the incisor into her body, you show, oh my god, look at all the worms in her womb. That kind of thing. Yeah, this is not a, not a fan. Just not a fan. But the entire point... Yeah. And also, this speech is somewhat undermined, but the casual bit of anti-Semitism thrown in there. Uh, yeah. He's feared by their breed and famous by their birth, renowned for their deeds as far from home, for Christian service and through and true chivalry, as is the sepulchre in stubborn Jewry. <laughs> that is. It's like in Much Ado About Nothing, where it's saying that you are beautiful like a diamond in an Ethiop's ear. Yeah, like for me, I was kind of hoping that uh, as I was listening to it, I, I was just hearing jewelry, you know, like accessories. So the stubborn of jewelry would be like they're hard and they're cold and um, like you, it's like you, they should, they, you, it's a struggle to bend to their will. And then I saw the text and I'm like, oh, damn it. I thought too much of you, Shakespeare. Uh, I would I, say that putting aside uh, the unfortunate connotations of what we've seen, the point of this is saying England's great, England's great, England's great, and then finally saying England is now bound in with shame. It's quite a quite one of those quite conventional uh, conservative things. Was like, oh, we have such a lovely nation, a brilliant nation. Oh, but now it's terrible. Yep. Um, in the next scene, um, the queen? I, 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 do we want to talk just a bit about how, you know, the king essentially decides to have a battle of sparring of wits with this dying guy? Yeah, he doesn't actually not too bad, though. Uh, do you mean Gaunt or King Richard? Uh, King Richard. 
Yes, it's like after we have Gaunt uh, saying, oh, how the name befits my composition, old Gaunt indeed, and Gaunt in being old, within me grief hath kept a tedious fast, and who abstains from meat that is not Gaunt. And then King Richard says, can sick men play so nicely with their names? Which is, stop panning. Can you stop panning? I don't care. I want your stuff. <laughs> and um, he does also... Wait, uh, it is here, right? Roundly. Yeah. Um, admittedly, Richard II doesn't get too much back uh, just because John of Gorn just keeps going. Um, but yeah, a lunatic, lean-witted fool, presuming on an egg's privilege, darest with thy frozen admonition make pale our cheek, chasing the royal blood with fury from his native residence. Now by my seat's right royal majesty, wert thou not brother to great Edward's son, this tongue that runs so roundly in thy head should run thy head from thy unreverent shoulders. And it's like, oh, if you, if you keep talking, uh, uh, the only thing that's going to be, uh, you know, talking so roundly uh, is your head on a spike. How dare you? Um, but, you know, that's a threatening uh, death upon a person that is already dying is a bit... You know, so he can't. He can't even be polite. He can't even say, "Look, you're going to die. I'm going to take your stuff soon." He can't even put on a happy face. He is someone who does not have the character to hold himself in. Which, again, the only thing that King Richard has going for him is that he's king. As a human being, he is an ungoverned, uh, undisciplined sort of guy. Yeah, and um. Even Edmund of Langley. Um, I would after... actually, on, on the note I just said, I would say that even Gaunt almost seems to be coming round to that. Uh, because, you know, we were talking about Act 1, Scene 2, where the Duchess of Gloucester is saying, Be a man, kill the person who killed your relative, the Duke of Gloucester. Take revenge right now. And in that scene, there's like a tug between your political loyalties and your family loyalties. John of Gaunt. He, his family loyalties are telling him to take revenge on the person who killed his relative, the Duke of Gloucester. His political loyalties are pulling him towards, you know, staying faithful to the king. Here, at the end, we have John of Gaunt saying, this is made more complicated by the fact that the king is an awful person who caused the death of Gloucester. He says, oh, spare me not, my brother Edward's son, for that I was his father, Edward's son, that blood already, like the pelican, hast thou tapped out and drunkenly caroused. My brother Gloucester, plain, well-meaning soul, whom fair befall in heaven amongst happy souls, may be a precedent and witness good, that thou respects not spilling Edward's blood. Join with the present sickness that I have, and thy unkindness be like crooked age, to crop at once a too long withered flower. Live in thy shame, but die not shame with thee. These words hereafter thy tormentors be. Convey me to my bed, then to my grave. Love they to live that love and honour have. So essentially now he's saying, look, I, I... I mean, beforehand he was saying, if he killed Gloucester wrongly, now he's saying, no, I know you killed him wrong. I know you had no good reason to do that. You are an awful human being now. 
Yeah. I mean, part of me had like hoped, well, not hoped, but more of um, interpreted it as um, Gaunt sort of giving him the final warning um, before passing, before, you know, quietly going off stage and passing away. Um, because he does at the very start go, methinks I am a prophet new inspired and thus expiring, do foretell of him. Um, his rash fierce blaze of riot cannot last, for violent fires soon burn out themselves. Small showers last long, but sudden storms are short. He tires be times that spurs too fast be times, with eager feeding food doth choke the feeder. So, like, he, John of Gaunt is a little bit like, if he keeps going, if he keeps going, it's going to be bad. And, um... And so as a final warning, without really leaning both either way, he says, live with thy shame, but also don't let thy shame be dead. But that's that's straight up, uh, no, you're, you've, you've done wrong. You should be ashamed. So, um, and Inmund of Langley, a friend of Gaunt's, um, basically says the same thing like i am also disillusioned how long shall i be patient ah how long shall are we talking i think we're talking about the duke of york the duke of york uh, how long yes. shall i be patient ah how long shall tender duty make me suffer wrong yes. and the duke of york to, to give you sort of an idea of his character he is eventually going to side entirely with bolingbroke uh although he does the Duke of York seems to be the kind of person who will follow the king, whoever that king is. Not wholeheartedly, but he does tend to be... He respects the person in power. Yeah. Because... Um, but uh, does he respect the person in power when well, they are a betrayer? Because he does say... Um, uh, you, you frown at... Where's the frown? So, in peace, of, of whom thy father, Prince of Wales, was first, in war was never lion raged more fierce, in peace was never gentle lamb more mild than was that young and princely gentleman, his face thou hast, for even so looked he, accomplished with the number of thy hours, but when he frowned it was against the French, and not against his friends, his noble hand did will what he did spend, and spent not that which his triumphant father's hand had won. His hands were guilty of no kindred blood, but bloody with the enemies of his kin. Oh, Richard, York is too far gone with grief, or else he never would compare between, which is hilarious. I thought he was speaking to the king when I first listened to this. No, he was just talking to himself. Um, no, he is. I mean, he is talking to the king. It's. I don't know. It's like, why, uncle? What's the matter? It's like, I feel like King Richard is, is like just noticing... I mean, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I think it's King Richard saying, I don't actually care what you have to say. Uh, I know you've been haranguing me and scolding me, but I don't care. You have no power over me. I am king. Why should I care what you think about my actions? Yeah, that's true. But, um, yeah, so already, like, quite early on, um, in this, since this is Act 2, Scene 1, we are seeing people going we might have to do something. We don't know what yet, but something has to be done. Which is where we get to the, the in this act, Bolingbroke, he does come back. Uh, he, he comes back from over the sea. He's barely left, but he waits 
for King Richard to go to Ireland, so he's out of the country right now. And Bolingbroke takes this absence as his time to gather some allies within the country to go and take back Lancaster. We, it's an ambiguous point whether this is his entire goal. Because we know he does eventually take all of England. But at this point, the propaganda or the party line is that, no, the only thing we're doing is taking back Lancaster. That's all I want of you. Let me have Lancaster. I'll stop it there. Although, is he always intending to take the throne? At what point does this become a let me usurp the king sort of plan? I mean, I, part of me wonders if um, York suspects so. Um, because even in condition of the worst degree in gross rebellion and detested treason, uh, he is back. Thou art a banished man, and here art come before the expiration of thy time in braving arms against thy sovereign. And Henry, uh, using a, a rather pedant loophole, as I was banished, I was banished Hereford. But as I come, I come for Lancaster. And noble uncle, I beseech your grace, look on my wrongs with an indifferent eye. You are my father, for methinks in you I see old Gaunt alive. Anyway, he's basically saying, uh, since my dad's dead, um, my title is no longer Hereford, it's Lancaster, and therefore the person that was banished and the person that came back are completely different. I, and... I would say that on this point, that he has, as at other points, he does make a slightly more deep legal argument. So throughout this play, King Richard's idea is, I am the divinely appointed, I am the king, no one may go against me. But the legal argument made by... Bolingbroke and some other characters is that look the only reason you are king is because you inherited your position you inherited England from your father I inherited Lancaster from my father if you treat my inheritance as meaning nothing then you are also by implication treating your inheritance as meaning nothing so on Bolingbroke's side there is the idea that, no, kingship has limits. There are certain things you cannot do. There are certain things which your kingly authority prevents you from doing, which, you know, given that the Magna Carta existed at this point, uh, maybe he has a good reason uh, for saying that, a good legal argument for that. Uh, but the king is saying, no, what I say goes. There is nothing holding me back. So I do feel that Bolingbroke is not merely a pedant. He does have Lancaster is mine. The king is trying to take away Lancaster. No, he can't do that without invalidating his own claim to his property. Yes, but I'm what my pedant argument for him coming back early is yeah. what I'm claiming to be pedant. Like the rest, I agree with, and he has a good leg to stand on. But just the whole a you banish the name and not the person is going a little sus for me. Um, but that's just. You know, um... it, it, I feel that maybe, yes, it, this is sort of a ridiculous pedantic argument. It could be the case that for whatever other better arguments these characters had, for whatever legal arguments these characters had, fundamentally what's going on is they have something they want to do. This guy wants this land, this guy wants to do this, and they'll find any argument to justify. The arguments come secondary to doing the act in the first place. The arguments don't really matter in a sense. Perhaps. Um, 
yeah, no, every, everything else is, um, but yeah, I'm going to stand by the fact that um, I agree that every post this situation, every argument that he makes, makes sense. It's just the first one that gets him back into the country is just making me go, are you, sh- you're feeling a little susser. Um, and what is the point of, of scene four? Um, is I it think just- scene four, is that the one where a Welsh guard is on a tower or something like that? I, yeah. I think the basic part of that scene is just them saying, oh, the king can't get information that quickly. So the king will, he won't, uh, he's going to be, he's going to have a surprise when he comes home. Yeah. Um, is, I, I would like to go back to perhaps York uh, because uh, he's had quite an arc in this. Where at the start of this act, he's, he's saying, John of Gaunt, don't bother arguing with the king. He's too stubborn to ever listen to you. And then York says, oh no, I can't hold my tongue anymore. I have been too tolerant of your failures, king. Let me tell you what I think of you. And then we have when Bolingbroke comes along, Bolingbroke says, I'm going to take back Lancaster. And York says, no, don't rebel against your king. Don't do that. He's your king. But, you know, I'm not going to fight against you. And if you want, you can stay in my house for a while. I'm not going to support you. But, you know, you can sleep in my house. I'll give you food. I'm not supporting you, though. I'm like the Swiss. I'm just going to have you in my house. Yeah, no, that's fair. But I feel like um, uh, what was... I feel like the previous scene was more of a uh, things spoken in anger, especially since his friend is on a deathbed and then um those feelings just carrying on and um the logic of the whole political thing of listen to your king is slowly dying to passion um and as i have said um bolingbroke being a pedant but still perfectly legally sound in his argument of i should be home so I can look after my my um, dad's stuff because it's my stuff now. Um, gives York also a legal leg to stand on. It's like he's he's my nephew, and he should be able to um, take his land. I I disagree with this on a lawful basis anyway. So um, I think it's less of a roller coaster but more the the scales between passion and personal sense of justice versus politics and divine right slowly teetering towards one way because you know even if you do put a, a slight weight on it does unless it's a really big weight it doesn't go chunk down it does teeter a little bit first Yes, and it does take him a while before he's willing to even kill his son for for Bolingbroke's sake. Yeah, that was a bit wild to me. Do you want to talk a bit about the Queen's, the Queen's foreboding? She's thinking something bad's going to happen. I feel something bad's going to happen. Then someone comes in and says, ah, Bolingbroke's invaded. That is, I feel that that was a bit quick. The Queen doesn't really have that much to do with the plot or the play in general i'm i'm assuming there's going to be like more of her later in the the sequels not um, really no uh, really but, 
No, no. I think what my the notes of my edition, which is the Arden Shakespeare edition, they basically say she's only there so that you don't view the king as being a total arsehole. She is there to be a person who likes the king and can sort of make his case for the audience. Okay, yeah, that's true. Because um, he does treat her kindly and with respect and general, you know, loving looks. So Richard the second, he may be an awful guy, but he is a wife guy. <laughs> Act three. King Richard's back home. He's finished fighting the Irish. And he's found that Bolingbroke has all the cards. Bolingbroke has too much military power and noble support to resist. And what's more, he's executed King Richard's favourite favourites. Oh no, Bushy, Baggerton, Green, Flopsy, Mopsy and Cottontail, all of them, they're dead. After moping a bit, King Richard is dragged to Bolingbroke for a parley. Bolingbroke will submit if he gets his land back, if he gets Lancaster back. Rather than compromise, Richard basically shoots himself in the foot by giving over his kingship. Did I miss anything? I will admit I'm a bit uncertain about the last sentence there because it happened a bit fast and happened a bit ambiguously. I'm not quite sure how it happened that King Richard gave over his kingship. I think it, it was a little bit like um, uh, our first Henry. Um, Henry so, VI? Yeah, so basically promised that he will be his heir. Um, so it's like, hey, I don't have a son. I'm assuming they don't have a son yet. Um, if they did, I feel like um, the queen would be a little bit hissy about it, just like Margaret was. But yeah, I think um, Richard was like, hey, I don't have a son. I'm not... You are both old enough to be my brother, but young enough to be, or something like that. So it's like, you can have the kingship. Um, I think I think in that part, he was sort of being a bit, uh, even as he was caving and giving over everything the guy wanted, he was being a bit sarcastic. Oh, look at you. You're old enough to be my brother. And yet apparently you're young enough to be my heir. Mm. Mm. Yeah, again, this is kind of why I really need to know what kind of person Richard II was meant to be. Because if he was um, an entitled um, person with a very scornful streak in him, that would be a very different delivery and a very deliberate different subtext to the 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 words um if he was um sophie sophie um, can i tell you something i found a contemporary image of richard ii on a tapestry which uh you just tell him this is him meeting his six-year-old wife when he's 29 i sent it to what? you on facebook tell me tell me if you think that the tapestry maker had something against him Ooh, okay no no no, no let me uh sent sent a photo Oh. Oh. His hair is awful. It's, you that that receding hairline is doing uh, a lot to make this seem 
deeply, deep. That that tapestry, yeah. It's like I'm sorry. There's just not really too many ways to make this seem good. No, and even the uh, like you know how like um, baby Jesus looks both like a baby and um, a, a middle aged man, and there is an art term for it. It's homunculi or homunculus. Um, even like the, I guess you could argue that the nine-year-old child has sort of been homunculied. Um, she looks a lot older and definitely has a massive forehead. Um, poor girl. But yeah, no, like, it, is it me or does it look like she's leaning back a little bit as as Richard leans way, way forward and ha- and is looking down his nose at her? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm looking at the fuller image and those, there are lots of men watching this. And I, I know this is meant to be, you know, it's a marriage. Let's be solemn. No, they, they do look like they're saying, oh, God, look at the, look, he's kissing the, he's kissing the child again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very, that's very unfortunate. Um, and uh, my, but yeah, so for me, um, I sort of, t- sort of took that um, speech as, somewhat um sincere because um like the scene before or maybe even a few scenes before when he um delivers his beautiful um monologue about dead kings um like it maybe seemed like he like turned a new leaf or at least turned a leaf out of many leaves that he has um and tried to be a little bit sincere while also being you know a a sore loser because he's had this epiphany about you know kings are always killed so he's like you're gonna get killed too at this rate if you also become king but i am going a little ahead of myself here you're talking about the let us tell sad stories about the death of kings is that the one you're talking about of course i will say that i had a slightly different view of it this time you know the most whenever i read that scene separately and it's one of the whose speeches that can be printed entirely separate it has its own page i think on poetry foundation so it people know it's a brilliant monologue and it's taken out of context i do fear when i usually read it i had the image in my mind of him saying oh something terrible has happened but now i shall stoically and sweetly take my medicine and just understand that i'm going to die when it's happening here it does feel like in context you know he still has a chance to save himself but this is him saying ah it's all hopeless let me i i i'm I won't even try to save myself now. Let's let's not even bother fighting. Let's tell sad stories about the death of kings. And like you're saying, it's him throwing over another leaf and him, you know, coming to terms with, you know, his weakness. It is that, but it is also perhaps a bit too much of that. Because multiple times when the day is turning against him, he does this thing where he'll say... Oh, it's hopeless. Oh, I'm terrible. 
Uh, no, no, he's not saying I'm terrible. He's saying other people are terrible to me. I suffer so much. I'm the most put upon person in this world. I am like Jesus Christ. Ah, but Jesus, he only had one Judas betraying him. I have all you six Judases around me, each one of you six times worse than Judas himself. He is turning over another leaf, but it's to this sort of victim complex he has. I mean, he does so like but in terms of chronology um he says judas to everyone and everyone's like no they are dead that's why they're not here and then he has the oh whoa uh the crown is is useless and then he has the you as an heir you are old enough to be a brother but young enough to be my heir um so like in terms of um like progression, it's it has a through line in my mind, especially with going back to the whole um, the scales, um, mortal peril or um, you know divine right. Um, more weight is being placed on the mortal peril, but he can't. But you know, uh, old old perceptions die hard, so it lingers it shifts and then goes back and then shifts down again until it settles to the point of i'm gone i'm done i remember so i have using shakespeare the critical heritage i have some comments by a guy called francis gentleman france lovely name francis gentleman he says in 1774 he's saying richard's acceptance of defeat by bolingbroke Richards here discovers his true character, a most wretched, shameful, pusillanimated, that word, the word that uh, it, it means coward, a uh, coward, a cowardice and despondency that would stigmatize a private man, much more a monarch who from birth, education and station ought to think with more magnanimity and act with more resolution. I will say that essentially he's saying here that Richard, he's be he's accepting defeat too easily. He's being a bit of a coward. He probably should be willing to fight a bit more. And this is something that I think a lot of other characters seem to think of him. I think that let's go down. Uh, ah, so Carlyle says, "My lord, wise men." So after he gets so, a lot of other characters seem to agree with Francis Gentleman here. Where after. King Richard gives his beautiful speech about how vanity, vanity, all kingship is vanity. Carlyle says, My lord, wise men ne'er sit and wail their woes, but presently prevent the ways to wail. And so he's saying, you know, stop, stop sucking, get up. And I think even later on, in the later act, when he's essentially going to get uh, imprisoned by uh, York, his queen is saying, no, no, a king is like a lion. If you're cornered, you fight back. Why are you just moping, my king? So, yeah, Francis Gentleman's view of this character is sort of backed up by a lot of other characters in the play. He accepts defeat too easily. He is unwilling to fight just that little bit for what he theoretically should have. I mean, like, I guess for me, it sort of makes sense because... Um... He thought he was top dog his whole life. Um, he had a firm belief in divine right and things would 
go in his direction forever and always. Like he's telling the earth to like, you know, do well by him and do not by his enemies. Like, hey, if you, you need to be a little very confident in your status quo position um, to, for that to be the case. And then like it's quashed immediately by an army of humans like he's it, it almost feels like he's been lied to and like he's like he's not going to live the lie anymore and that's and that's his curse i guess um i thought everyone loved me <laughs> at the end he, he does realize that you know in terms of physical earthly power he has nothing and even when there are men with, you know, swords against him, he says, My master, God omnipotent, is mustering his clouds on our behalf, armies of pestilence, and they shall strike your children, yet unborn and unbegot, that lift your vassal hands against my head and threat the glory of my precious crown. Tell Bolingbroke, for yon methinks he stands, and every stride he makes upon my land is dangerous treason. He has come to open the purple testament of bleeding war. But ere the crown he looks for live in peace, ten thousand bloody crowns of mother's son shall ill become the flower of England's face. Uh, in, a, in a way, uh, in the later plays, in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Part Two, and Henry the Fifth, we will see that he's a bit right that uh, there will be sort of a curse on Bolingbroke's reign, uh, but you know that it doesn't come soon enough to actually save Richard. Do we want do we want to just briefly bring up how Bolingbroke subtly accuses Bushy Baggett and Green a bit subtly of sodomy? Excuse me, what? Where? So when he's reading out their charges, essentially, since presently your souls must part your bodies with too much urging or pernicious life. That's that's a point to make. That Bolingbroke. He is in no way king yet. He is not He is not officially asked to be king, and yet he is taking it upon himself to execute these people on behalf of the king. That's a no-no. Uh, but he says, uh, yada yada. Since he's laying out their charges, he says, Yet to wash your blood from off my hands, here in the view of men, I will unfold some causes of your deaths. You have misled a prince, a royal king, a happy gentleman in blood and lineaments, by you unhappy and disfigured clean. You have, in manner, with your sinful hours, made a divorce betwixt his queen and him, broke the possession of a royal bed, and stained the beauty of a fair queen's cheeks with tears drawn from her eyes by your foul wrong. Now, that's one of those things where you don't want to say out loud what he's saying there, but it does feel like he's saying that you have been doing uh, gay things with the king. You have fucked the queen. Uh, no, I just thought that was all about um, waging war on Ireland, being dude bros, um and keeping the king from his queen and his uh, like kingly duties i will say that the uh, my uh, the ardent edition of shakespeare agrees with my reading of it oh really <laughs> so i'd say it's one of those things where you can't at all say this in a non-vague way for reasons of elizabethan era political correctness 
But a person with a good enough eye for detail will say, is, is that what they're asking for? Is he really saying that? Oh, no, I did not read that far into it at all. But on that happy and wholesome note. <laughs> oh, actually, um, the very last scene, when the queen um, uh, basically curses a gardener. Um, in Act Three, Scene Four, um, the gardener and some king, and they're basically saying, "Yeah, the the king is uh, deposed," and uh, the queen's like, "Excuse you, thou old Adam's likeness, set to dress this garden. How dares thy harsh, rude tongue sound this unpleasing news? What Eve, what serpent hath suggested thee to make a second fall of cursed man?" Why dost thou say King Richard is deposed? Darest thou, thou little better thing than earth, divine his downfall? Say, where, when, and how camest thou by this ill tidings? Speak, thou wretch. And the gardener say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean for you to like hear this like this, but yeah, Bolingbroke um, deposed him, like he's no longer king. And uh, the queen says, I see. You know what? I hope nothing grows for you. <laughs> what was I born to this that my sad look should grace the triumph of great Bolingbroke? Gardener, for telling me these news of woe, pray God the plants thou graftest may never grow. Um, and just the whole going back to the England being a garden for Richard is, and, and the Queen's going, I hope, I hope it dies, basically. Um, it's and given that the War of the Roses is basically going to happen very soon, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not. She is. This is sort of like Margaret cursing everyone in Richard III. Yeah, no, but um, at least like I prefer Margaret's way of cursing people. It's just a, it's just far more visceral, while hers is is quite polite. She goes, "I hope you. I hope you. I hope you suck at your job. I hope your your job is." unfulfilling nothing i hope nothing grows i hope your green thumb turns brown or black or whatever no it's very cute <laughs> and even the gardener says oh she's 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 in a bad state i won't hold it against her what she said to me <laughs> on that i mean this is a, a little bit of trivia about this play i think it is one of the only or one of only two of Shakespeare's plays that are done entirely in poetry. There's not a single bit of prose in it. It is entirely in poetry. And which, at this point, when it comes to the gardeners, you think that this is an active... No, for, okay, so this is plays entirely in poetry. Now, in Shakespeare... Uh, Poetry, the distinction between poetry and prose can suggest a lot of things. Sometimes speaking in poetry means that this character is high class and people who speak in prose, they tend to be lower class. Or it can mean that if you're speaking in poetry, you're speaking formally, whereas people who speak in prose, they're speaking informally. That happens in Much Ado About Nothing. In this one, every single bit is written in poetry. Now, that could just be an accident of it being about lots of nobles doing these sorts of things but it i do think that it might be a conscious artistic choice on shakespeare's part 
Because, as I said, sometimes speaking in prose is a sign of a character being a bit lower class. Well, in this, they're speaking to gardeners, and these gardeners are speaking in poetry. Shakespeare had an opportunity to give them prose, but they don't. Did you... Did this ever occur to you, or do you think there's any reason why every bit is written in, let's say, a heightened diction of poetry? Um, I will just make a personal gripe first that it made reading this so much harder. Because at least when um, it when text turned from prose to poetry, I could immediately go, oh, I'm meant to pay attention to that. Like, that's um, William going, hey, you, I, I, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this because it rhymes. It's suddenly, like, lyrical um, and melodied compared to the mess that is prose. Um, and the, yes, that's the yeah. problem with uh, that's the problem with prose in Shakespeare. You know, poetry very structured, very not not rigid, but it is written in a very proper sort of way. Whereas prose is, is him saying, "Now we're going to speak like people on the street speak." And I have no idea how Elizabethan street people talked. Well, yeah. So, like, I was going, ah, this is so hard to read, or at least um harder to listen to while doing the dishes or chopping up vegetables because that's how I consume these um sue me and um like I was going where is the prose I hate you um but um I do think this gives um the historical event an almost uh I won't say okay not fictional but more elevated like this is like the opening it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Um, kind of gravitas to the whole affair, despite it, um, you know, being basically the precursor to the War of the Roses. And I think it also kind of gives uh, Richard more um, of a... Uh, he, Richard, unlike Bolingbroke, feels like a king in all he like he has the pomp he has the posture he has the words they're not good words as in they're nice or noble but they he has the flowery words that elevate him above a commoner um and even his gardeners are a little more flowery a little more structured just generally like you would expect in a story while Bolingbroke later kind of proves himself to be a very short king um he he, he doesn't give any ceremony to things um so he feels human but not in a good way because if you are king you are in theory a, a hand of God, like so. Why aren't you a little bit godly, a little bit more aloof, um, above? You know. So um, this whole affair is meant to be, or it feels like it's poetic. If I have to use that word, because I can't think of what anything else now. Um, so I think that's kind of why that he's using it, that Shakespeare decided, let's go with all poetry. He might have decided he just wanted to give himself a challenge as well. Um, whether it was well executed is another thing entirely. 
but like it's it was a choice act four bolingbroke's kingship is almost a done thing but as with so many revolutions when the old regime is out the new one starts to fracture in bolingbroke's court everyone starts accusing each other of treason they are slapping each other with gloves and demanding jewels briefly they put aside their differences to depose king richard and make bolingbroke at last king henry the fourth did i miss anything no um it was this this was a frustrating scene like i was very glad that it was act four is just one scene but also i hated that it was such a long one because uh, uh, at least when i'm listening to it um i can't tell the difference between people so um and part of me is like i did did they even a lot have of, there's a lot of characters each of whom has sort of similar motivations uh just talking going back and forth amongst each other yeah it was not like i'm sure it's like it's a thematically deep uh scene the more we talk about it and the more i'm like re-examining the evidence but um like at the time i was like please move on please i mean it is i'd say thematically deep in how it mirrors the start of the play where at the start of the play the sign that richard's you know the, the, the trouble started when two lords came up to Richard and say, we don't like each other, let's fight each other. And Richard was about to say, no, don't fight each other. In this part, we have Bolingbroke, and there are lots of different lords, even more than two, more than two people saying, let's duel. We don't like each other, let's duel. And so Bolingbroke is now in almost exactly the same position as Richard was at the beginning. It's almost Shakespeare saying, look at what happens when you rebel. The problems still say the same. The new guy is going to have the same problems as the old guy. Yeah, that's true. Um, what did you think of uh, Bishop of Carlisle's very long speech? Where does this start? I admit, I sort of skipped out. Ah, so Carlyle's saying Bolingbroke is a usurper, essentially. Basically, yeah, because um, I'm genuinely surprised that he lasted a little bit. Because... Um, I think in the next act, Ormel, when he's surrendering to... So Ormel gets into a conspiracy with Carlyle and some other guys to kill Bolingbroke. Ormel essentially says... Give me my life, I'll sell the others out. <laughs> so Carlisle, I think, is not going to survive. I'll probably should check on Wikipedia, but I don't think he's going to survive. Mm. I think also it's kind of fascinating that um, it's actually not the previous um, scene, previous act, when uh, Richard is deposed in theory um, by um, just... Ah! So in this scene, like um, everyone's going like, "I hate you, um, Carlisle." The the bishops like, "Ah, no, this is wrong." Like Richard isn't even here to defend himself, and then Henry's like, eh, "Bring him in." 
And finally, um, Richard says, with mine own tears, I wash away my balm. With mine own hands, I give away my crown. With mine own tongue, deny my sacred state. And with mine own breath, release all duties, rights, all pomp and majesty. I do forswear my manners, rents, revenues, I forego. My acts, decrees and statutes, I deny. God pardon all oaths that are broke to me. God keep all vows are broke that swear to thee. Make me that nothing have with nothing grieved, da, 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 da. And God save King Henry, unkinged, Richard says, and send him many years of sunshine days. What more remains? Um, this... I definitely hear in a very salty way, especially since afterwards he's like, my mine eyes are full of tears. I cannot see. And yet salt water blinds them not so much, but they can see a sort of traitors here. Nay, if I turn mine eyes upon myself, I find myself a traitor with the rest for I have given here my soul's consent to undeck the pompous body of a king, make glory base and sovereignty a slave, proud majesty a subject, state a peasant. Um, Richard is really firing on all cylinders here. Yeah, just having a big old sook and then just continues having a sook, um, beautiful sook nonetheless. He is. Richard, Richard, give me the crown. Here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin, on his this side my hand, and on that side thine. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another. The emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down unseen and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I. Drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. He is full of imagery. I have a, a quote from 1784 by a guy called Thomas Davies. And he says, we cannot suppose a more awful and affecting transaction than a prince brought before his subjects compelled to deprive himself of his royalty and to resign his crown to the popular claimant, his near relation. This is a subject worthy the genius of Shakespeare. And yet, it must be confessed, he has fallen infinitely short of his usual powers to excite that tumult of passion which the action merited. He was ever too fond of quibble and conceit, but here he has indulged himself beyond his usual predilection for them, and I cannot help thinking, from this circumstance alone, that Richard II was written and acted much earlier than the date in the stationer's books. So he's reading this, this guy called Thomas Davies, and he's saying, Shakespeare, you stop doing all these puns, stop doing all these metaphors, just show some restraint, Shakespeare. I, he even says, I, I bet, I bet this was sort of taming of the shrew era, Shakespeare. Oh, that's a bit mean. It, it, even today, I'd say that even today people could look at this and say, mm, Shakespeare, probably, probably pull back a bit. I know you can write poetry, but show a bit of restraint, Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, like, he kind of had to do the rhymes in his... He is doing a whole play in not prose, so... Um, like, I, I, I will say that I myself, I like this generally, but when I got to this part, I did feel a bit... Um, that You're going a bit too far, Shakespeare, like King Richard saying. So Bolingbroke says, Are you contented to resign the crown? And King Richard says, I know. No, I, for I must nothing be. Therefore, no, no, for I resign to thee. 
Now mark me. So that sort of I know no I. It is. Let, let's just. It, it does feel a bit too thick with words. A bit too thick with playing with words. That is true. Ah, uh, but you know, um, it's also to me. It's in character. Like this man is so used to talking and so used to people listening to him that um especially now when he's probably in a high emotional state when he's rattled um and people are sort of turning away in shame um because they don't want to look at him being so brought down low and and he's like no 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 you listen to you talked i i'm talking right now you know i used to be king i i am still king in my heart kind of thing um but yeah, generally, and, he does uh, manage. He does manage to sort of keep a level of pride here. Like when Bolingbroke says, "Name it, fair cousin," and King Richard says, "Fair cousin, I am greater than a king. For when I was a king, my flatterers were then but subjects. Being now a subject, I have a king here to my flatterer." That's a brilliant line. It's like, oh yes, now you're flattering me. It's trying to have even in just words trying to have a little bit of I have pride still. Yeah, um, that too. Uh, but again, that that, feel, that feels like a, a delivery, not issue, but a de delivery version, I guess, where you have the, the haughty, the entitled, the, the cuckoo-lander, how his character, how his nature is, defines how he will be delivering those lines in that scene. It, it certainly requires an actor's choice. And before, I was talking about how, in the previous act, I was talking about how King Richard, he has a sort of a persecution victim complex he does come back to that here, and he does come back to comparing other people to Judas and himself to Christ, uh, where he says, so he's in, so he enters with Richard and York, and he says, Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my knee. Give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission, yet I well remember the favours of these men. Were they not mine? Did they not sometimes cry, All hail to me? So Judas did to Christ, but he in twelve found truth in all but one, I in twelve thousand, none. So he is, he is saying here that, you know, I'm sort of like Christ, I have a Judas, ah, but you know, Christ, he only had one Judas. I have 12,000 Judases. I, I, in, in the notes to my text, they quote Harold Bloom. And Harold Bloom says that Richard II has a, quote, sort of moral masochism. I don't know what that means, but it's a good line. Moral masochism. Mm, yes, very, very, very alliterative. Well, he's like, I guess, I guess it's just the more manly version of woe is me, I guess, or, or a more toxic version of oh, woe is me 
because everyone I was me me. with an Oxbridge education. (laughs) But yeah, shall we move on to act? Just to end it with, there is a lovely line. It's one of those lines of Shakespeare where you don't quite know what it means, uh, and yet it still strikes you. We find it. It's where Bolingbroke says, Go, some of you, convey him to the tower. And King Richard says, Oh, good, convey. Conveyors are you all that rise thus nimbly by a true king's fall. Brilliant line, brilliant line. I remember hearing that as a teenager and thinking, Oh, that's a brilliant line. Had no idea what a conveyor was. So. <laughs> But it's just one of those, like, you don't actually need to know what all the words mean, but it does strike you, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. It's a shame that the scene doesn't end with that, because it just keeps going with, on Wednesday next week, so let me sit down on Coronation. You should have just finished with that line. The, the line that actually ends this is, I see your brows are full of discontent, your hearts of sorrow and your eyes of tears. Come home with me to supper. I'll lay a plot shall show us all a merry day. So, you know, there's a bit of foreboding there, but it's not as... Uh, the, the Hollow Crown by the BBC, I might be misremembering this, but I do feel that they did cut the scene when he said, that rise thus nimbly by a true king's fall. Scene change. Or maybe even credits. There. <laughs> Get ready for the next episode. <laughs> Five. King Richard is king no longer, and now a prisoner at Pomfret. Pomfrey, it's a place that's P-O-M. He was meant to go to the tower, but now he goes to an unpronounceable place. Like a Cthulhu victim. <laughs> Shakespeare, the first writer of weird horror fiction. I think... In supernatural horror and literature, H.P. Lovecraft specifically cites Macbeth as a precursor to uh, uh, his kind of horror fiction. I mean, that makes sense. You have the the witches' uh, monologues, which are so good, so good. And then the and then the horrifying image of an entire forest moving against you. That's Jack. Yeah, that would be terrifying. Um, like everything, like whenever the supernatural, supernatural get involved, like Macbeth is 10 out of 10. Hot take. Macbeth is pretty good. Yeah. So King Richard is not king any longer. He's now a prisoner in Pomfrey or Pomfret. Meanwhile, plots are forming against Bolingbroke, with the Duke of York discovering that his own son, Ormel, the Earl of Ormel, is conspiring to kill King Henry IV. That amounts to nothing. Forget about that. This is a tragedy. So how does Richard die? Ah, a guy called Sir Piers of Exton thinks that King Henry is wink-wink-nudge-nudging him into an assassination contract. Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest sort of thing? Exton and his pals kill Richard, but Henry is not at all grateful. The play ends with rebels rebelling against King Henry IV, 
and King Henry IV vowing to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He doesn't actually go on that pilgrimage. I mean, if Did he... Did I miss anything? No. Um... I guess you could. Uh, well, did we mention that the queen had a had a tearful goodbye at the very beginning? Oh no, I didn't. Because yeah, that I feel like that's a little bit important for the next play that is surely to pick up. Will it be? I don't know. It's been a while since I've read King Henry the Fourth Part One, but I don't remember the queen playing much of a role in it. Well, you did say that you the, the he had to fight the French, so I'm just assuming that her coming back was maybe a potential catalyst as well. But that I'm very much assuming because uh, I don't read Shakespeare in my free time. At least so you I have view to. this podcast as an obligation, Sophie. You view this as work. <laughs> okay, okay. Then, uh, as in my um, in my youth and my young. Days. I don't know. I'll, I'll let it go. So we have even... So the Queen has been fairly supportive of Richard II, but even the Queen is telling him, you know, Richard, you shouldn't be so... Stop being such a sucker. Go, go, fight. Fight, Richard. She goes, she says... Um, it's like, what is my Richard, both in shape and mind, transformed and weakened? Has Bolingbroke deposed thine intellect? Hath he been in thy heart? The lion, dying thrusteth forth his paw and wounds the earth if nothing else with rage to be overpowered and wilt thou pupil-like take correction mildly kiss the rod and fawn on rage with base humility which art a lion and the king of beasts so essentially there she's saying oh, just grow a pair richard and uh, he's like, mm, I'm sorry, but I can't because I'm not a beast. I am. Mad. And they are not beasts. They are men also. Um, or something like that. Uh, da, 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 da. And he's saying, I may as well be dead. Think I'm dead, queen. Go on. Think I'm dead. <laughs> that is Again, true. Again, this, this gets into what you were saying, but it very much depends on how you play this character. You can play him as a child, like as a teenage girl throwing a tantrum. They say, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone. I might as well be dead for all you care. <laughs> or, you know, just think of me as dead. I don't... If thinking about me will only bring you heartache. And I, I cannot do that to you more than I have already done. So think of me as dead. And I, I like to think of it as this way, preferably. Um... Just because, like, uh, tragedies like this, you want a little bit more complication, you know? It's like, if you're going to give him someone to be nice to, um, then make him extra nice, you know? It's like, if he's going to, if, if this is going to be the one redeeming feature, let, the, let this be lovely, let this be cute, you know? Um, Also, it is quite fascinating what he says here. Um, doubly divorced, bad men, you violate a twofold marriage twixt my crown and me, and then betwixt me and my married wife. Let me unkiss the oath twixt thee and me, and yet not so, for with a kiss twas made. Part us, Northumberland, I toward the north, where shivering cold and sickness pines the climb. My wife to France, from hence, set forth in pomp. She come she, she came adorned hither like sweet May, Sent back like Hallowmas or shortest or day of day. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's cute. It's cute. 
cute in a sort of tragic way. Yeah. It's hitting me. It's hitting my melancholy vibes. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> it's, uh, yes. I, I wish you and your husband luck, Sophie, in fulfilling this romantic dream of yours. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's a concern. Do we want to skip straight to how King Richard gets killed? I will just say, um, was it in scene? Okay, so in scene two, um, the game is up uh, for Son of York. He's yeah, The game is up in a sort of almost comedic way where Ormel comes in and he has a letter, which is him conspiring with some other people to kill Bolingbroke, to kill King Henry IV. And York is saying, what's that letter you got there, son? He's like, oh, no, this letter's nothing. Don't read this letter. No, no, I want to read that letter. You show me that letter. Oh, no, I don't. There's nothing in this letter. Please don't read it. It's like, oh, no, no, let me snatch it from you. Mm. Oh, my God. You want to kill the king. It, it almost feels like a sitcom. It does. Like, and it's a wild turn of events. I don't understand um, why this is happening. And then in, at, in scene, the next scene, everyone just rushes in going where's the king and um the king's like hey i'm here what up uh he goes i am gonna beg for mercy boy and then the dad comes is like no do not beg for mercy i beg harder for recrimination and then the mom goes rushes in and goes hey i i beg for mercy i we are, you have two people begging for mercy so that counts that counts we are begging more than one person um it's it's so dumb and then um i would say that you know this on a purely plot level you could remove this entirely and it's been a while since i've seen the hollow crown but i suspect maybe they they didn't have this part in it but you know this there's no plot reason for this episode to be included for a thematic reason maybe it does belong here because I think it is there to symbolize what revolution and political strife does to a country. Because, you know, already a bit of a civil war has broken out, Englishmen against Englishmen. Right now, because of politics, because of Bolingbroke's rebellion, we have a father begging for the death of his son, a son against a father, a wife against a husband. We have a family just broken up. And I think... This is sort of meant to symbolize what rebellion and civil war does to a country. The natural bonds between people who, are, who should be on the same side are utterly broken. I think that's the symbol here. I think for me also, um, this is the scene where I was like, Henry is too human. Um, he's just doesn't have the pomp, doesn't have the ceremony of king. Because... Ah, he says good aunt stand up twice and he doesn't even he doesn't give a speech he doesn't give any true poetic uh reassurance that everything is fine um so yeah duchess of york has a very 
heartfelt um, plea, dost thou teach pardon, pardon to destroy? Ah, my sour husband, my hard-hearted lord, that sets the word itself against the word. Speak pardon, as tis current in our land, the chopping French we do not understand. Thine eye begins to speak, yet thy tongue there, um, or in thy piteous heart plant thou thine ear, that hearing how our plaints and prayers do pierce, pity my move thee, pardon to rehearse. And Henry's like, Good aunts, stand up. I do not suit to stand. Pardon is all the suit I have in hand. I, I pardon him, as God shall pardon me. He said, oh, happy vantage of a kneeling knee, yet am I sick for fear, speak it again, twice saying pardon doth not pardon twain, but makes one pardon strong. He's like, with all my heart, I pardon him. Oh, a God on earth thou art. And finally he goes, for our trusty brother-in-law law and the abbot with all the rest of that consorted crew destruction straight shall dog them at the heels good uncle help to order several powers to oxford or where wherever these traitors are they shall not live within this world i swear but i will have them if i want once know where um onwards and onwards and i feel like the duchess would have been a lot sooner um reassured that her son was pardoned if he had been, you know, I hate pompous, you know, you know, pomp definitely not in the correct use of the word, but if he had been more pompous. Full of pomp, maybe. Yeah, full of pomp. Um, why is it <laughs> pompful? Um, they, he wouldn't have had to have dealt with this deluge of... Um, of people going, please don't kill me, because he is practical. He will kill people if he feels like he has to, because like he's a pragmatic man. He's very short. He's very mortal. He is used to mortal affairs of if he's if people are bad and left alone, they might try and kill you again. So he's not going to give people that chance. While like Richard is entirely different. Um, you have, but yeah, that's I'll I'll stop there. But anyway, the death of Richard, shall we get to that? Yes. Scene five of Act Five. I think we should first do Act Four, because this is where Exton... <laughs> it's one of those things where it's sort of ambiguous whether or not Exton was actually asked to kill King Richard. Because the way he describes it, he says, Didst thou not mark the king what words he spake? Quote, have I no friend who rid me of this living fear? Was it not so? And his servant said, These were his very words. And Exton says, Have I no friend? Quoth he. He spake it twice, and urged it twice together, did he not? He did. And speaking it, he wishedly looked on me, as who should say, I would thou wert the man that would divorce this terror from my heart. Meaning the king at Pomfret. Come, let's go. I am the king's friend and will rid his foe. So it is ambiguous whether Exon is perhaps reading a bit too much into what uh, King Henry is saying, or if King Henry is directly saying, no, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I wish someone would get rid of this king for me. Oh, won't someone please do it? Wink, wink. Yeah... I think because the way that it was framed, I think Exton 
um, basically rushed ahead of himself. Because um, I feel like if it had been actually Henry going, or Bolingbroke going, ah, oh, if only the sphere would go away, if only the sphere would go away, he'd be doing it on stage, not Exton going, by the way, did that happen? I swear it happened. Because um, I feel like if it had been that case, uh, the it could he could have also addressed the audience, you know, um, and the audience might have gone, eh, really, did he? Did he say that? Um, and some people might have said, yes, he did, while, like, other parts of the audience might have said, no, he didn't. What are you talking about, Exton? Um, and creating another this new kind of uncertainty, both within the text and diegetically outside of the text, although I'm pretty sure diegetically, diegetically outside the text is definitely not a thing, but... It is, uh, I think it's, yes, it's intentionally ambiguous, at least. And at the, and at the end, and you said he sort of goes a bit ahead of himself, this Exton guy, in killing King Richard. I think he also goes a bit ahead of himself in how he shows king henry that he's killed king richard because i think the stage directions explicitly says that he brings out the king's dead king richard's dead body to king henry now that even if you wanted someone dead you don't particularly want to see their dead body hauled up into a public place yeah no especially when people are still going ah, is this okay is this correct thing to do right now um, like, it's just a really good way to create more enemies because there might have been a few that were on the fence as so long as Richard was alive and then, yeah, behold this dead body in front of everyone just, you know, bleeding onto the carpet. It's it's pretty gross. I, I will say that the words at that ending point that Richard uses to condemn uh, Exton sort of play into the ambiguity of it. Because, yes, he's saying, you monster, why did you do this? I, I, I exile you. Go away. Uh, he never actually denies that he asked for uh, Richard to be killed. He says, oh, I regret that he is dead. I wanted him dead, but now I regret that he's dead. That doesn't actually deny that he asked for him dead or that he implied he wanted him dead. So even at this ending point, we are left with the ambiguity. There are three possible things. One of them is that he never intended for Richard to die, and Exton was went ahead of himself. The second is that he did ask Exton to kill Richard, but now he regrets that he asked him to do that. The third is that he wanted Exton, and he told Exton to kill King Richard, but now he is pretending to be against it. He is pretending to be all regretful so that no one thinks he actually meant it. So he, he gave himself enough plausible deniability about this that he can get what he wants, which is the King Richard dying, and so there's no one... You know, you, you don't want that king still alive because, you know, that's a person who has a claim to a throne and people will come to support him to perhaps get the throne back, so you want him out of the way. But also you don't want to kill him because that might make you seem a bit like a tyrant. So by doing a wink-wink-nudge-nudge nudge to Exton, Exton can kill him, and then you can say, you maniac, I never asked you to do that, kill him, but thank you. But no, get go away. So there are three possibilities there. 
of differing levels of realpolitik. Yeah, I am very much taking it as... Um, I, I wanted it in my heart of heart, but I never wanted it to be real, you know? It's, I guess it's a little bit like um, going... If you're a, a, at a theatre and you're um, a second to the main character, the person playing the main character, so if, you know, if uh, Johnny broke his leg, actually, and um, William was going to replace Johnny, if had that happened, it's just like, oh, cool, awesome. Like, I hope he breaks his leg. Like, I hope he doesn't, but, you know, I still want this, so... It, yeah, if he breaks a leg and he can't play and I get to play the main character, fantastic. Um, I'll still feel bad about it um, while enjoying being the main character. I feel like that's very much the same kind of vibe, but it's the stakes are higher because it, you, are, you have disposed of the hand of God. Oopsie! He also might have, you know, still liked him a little bit since he is a cousin. Um, and yeah, like, thank you for getting rid of an eyesore, but also you've condemned me. You have condemned me and I don't think I would be happy with this at all. We've been speaking for 20 minutes. Shall we get on to the king's death? Yes. We have, I think with the king's death, we have a long monologue, and I think this is actually the first actual soliloquy we get from him. The first monologue delivered just to himself. Am I right in that? Mm, I guess, uh, maybe? I feel like it's more of, again, it's an interpretation, like a character um, through-line issue. If it's, I mean, it, it, it could be a soliloquy, you know, soliloquy is sort of like, here is my stream of consciousness. In this one, it could be showing how, you know, off the wall he is, because he might just literally, diegetically be speaking to himself. For me, I am kind of leaning towards talking to himself, because um, at least on the open source Shakespeare.org version of this, there's a little thing, um, with nothing shall I be pleased, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. Music do I hear, and it actually says music. Haha, keep time, how sour sweet music is when time is broken, no proportion kept. Um, I'm wondering if William is being a little bit meta here, because um, usually um, when plays end, uh, there's a bit of a jig, there's a bit of a music. Everyone's like, if they're all dead, like they rise up, do a little jig, and you know, bow, curtains. It's the edge off. You saw someone die, but it's all it's all fun and games. We're all just actors. This is just pretense. And part of me is uh, wondering if that is a foreshadowing of that um, uh, trope, I guess. Um, There's happy music, but you know that the only way you're going to get happy music is once I'm dead. Yeah, like, um, so basically he is... He's a dead man walking. He's a dead man dancing. Um, and so it can both be, uh, yeah, so this is where I'm going. Like, it can be both a soliloquy and he can be going insane. Because, yeah, it's it might be him just, him being William, being a little bit meta about how this is. Because he's a dead man walking. 
<sighs> I have a from the critical heritage. I have from Francis Gentleman uh, a bit of a throwing shade on this entire monologue. He says the thirty-nine indented lines would, for recitation particularly, be better omitted than retained as they tend more to puzzle conception than to inform judgment. The author seems to have indulged his own fancy without consulting either the stage or the closet. Mm, harsh review, saying, oh, oh, Shakespeare, he, he got a bit away from himself with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is actually good. I don't know what he's talking about. This does seem like good lines. I Yeah, I think they're good. Like, I don't see like this a good chunk of of historical people criticizing shakespeare i usually agree with them but this one eh, are you sure how sour sweet music is when time is broken no proportion kept so is it in the music of men's live and here i have the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string, but for the concord of my state and time, I'd not an ear, my, I'd not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time, and now time waste me. Poetry. Poetry. And then, and then, Exton comes in and kills him. Ah, but actually, King Richard, like like the Queen suggested, King Richard gets a bit of some balls back. He says, oh, you're going to kill me? I'm going to fight you. And at least my stage directions say that he does kill or wound at least two of his attackers. Yeah, no, it definitely says on here, um, snatching an axe from a servant and killing him. He kills another. And then Exton strikes him down. Does this, uh, does this, mm, again, this is the ambiguity of this, and it does depend on how you present it. This could be, we are going to let this king die with some dignity. He's been sort of a whiff-waff, uh, airy-fairy sort of guy up until this point, but now at the end he has some vigor in him and he kills these guys. Or it could be just, he is a cornered animal right now, and he kills them with a sort of pathetic grasping for life. I mean, for... I mean, again, it's it's very much a what kind of version is this Richard II? Um, and also for me, it, it kind of is a reflection of, of Henry VI again, um, this ineffectual king having one last... Um, resistance against death um so in henry um he was like to richard iii you will ruin england and i know it because you were born bad and you grew up bad and you will stay bad and you're and i will watch from heaven and i will be upset with you Exton, thy fierce hand hath with the king's blood stained the king's own land. Mount, mount my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my gross flesh sinks downward here to die. Yeah, and um, Richard has a similar situation, and also he gets to actually kill two other people because he has gone to wars before, so he knows how to fight. So, like, again, it's, it's like a reflection of Henry 
the sixth and a different kind of ineffectual king. And yeah. As full of valor as of royal blood, both have I spilled. Oh, would the deed were good. For now the devil that told me I did well says that this deed is chronicled in hell. This dead king to the living king, Albert, take hence the rest and give them burial here. So even he, even in the moment, he's still not quite sure whether what he what he's done is correct or what was actually wanted. But you know what? I in for a penny, in for a pound. I guess. And this is sort of an echo of Richard the Third, where when Richard is trying to find someone to kill the children in the tower, he needs to find like an awful man, and this awful man agrees to do it. But he finds someone even more awful to do it. And but even that awful man starts regretting doing it. So there's this thing where these characters, even the most awful and mercenary among them, they know when they've done something truly unforgivable. Well, that's what happens when you kill a king. That was Richard the Second, the tragedy. Of Shakespeare's. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, listener, we have encouraged you to at least give this a look. There's a 50-50 chance it will be one of your favourites. And on the other side, it might just be um, uh, the, the sort of a damp squib. Sophie, ha! Huh, did you like it? Um, was it nice to listen to? Yes, because of the poetry. Um, but was, did I actually enjoy the play? <laughs> so talking about it, I think in some of our previous discussions, talking about the thing has greatly increased your enjoyment of it. Has this at all increased your enjoyment of it? Nah, not really. It, it's, it's still tedious, I guess. Um, because it, the poetry is nice to listen to. Like it has, it. It lands in the ears gently um, and lyrically. Doesn't mean I know what the hell's going. I don't. It, that doesn't mean I know what's going on as much. Um, and it doesn't change the fact that um, I'm just not a huge fan of historical plays. I guess um, because there is only so much growth allowed in a character because if they're based on a person that's existed that already has a set path towards a set path from beginning middle to end there is only there is only so much growth as a person with quotation marks implied and only so much um theming you can force upon them without breaking um chronology without being breaking faith with the uh events with the historical events that is known to the the people. You heard oh. it here first. Sophie is saying that historical films can never be art. Okay, I'm not saying that. <laughs> no, no, you said it quite clearly, Sophie. We all I... heard it. You're no! saying. I just think there's a limit Macbeth to how. Macbeth is not much. art. Uh, Richard III is not art. There we go. Oh. Like there's, unless you've taken a lot of liberties, I feel like there is only so much you can do to make the plot interesting. So you have to do it with theme. You have to do it with language. And I don't care about the theme of um, 
divine right and um, monarchy and, you know, gentlemanly conduct. I don't, I don't care about that stuff. So, um, yeah, like it's vibes alone, fine, a, a good play, good good poetry. A play, not uh, boring, it's fine. So much like Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was one thing you didn't like about this? One thing I didn't like. Uh, I don't really have um, strong feelings about this play. It's it's wet. It's fine. Um, it's it's not moist. It is say? a towelette that you get from like a plastic um, sleeve at at inside an airport. Um, yeah, it's not. It's fine. It does its job. Um, but I will. I wish. I guess there. I wish there had been a little bit more of the queen, because. Um, you wish she, we had gotten her name. Yeah, I wish we had gotten her name. But yeah, I just wished um, there had been a little bit more Queen, a little bit more of like her view of the, the monarchy and how her lovely lord, despite being so good to her, is not a good king or not a good person. Um, I feel like that was a, a missed opportunity in, I guess, digging deeper into the theme. Um yeah, more more of the queen. Give her a name. On the things that I didn't like, I would say that, yeah, as this is history, uh, there are going to be a lot of parts that are only there. Well, not only there. You know, Shakespeare's a good writer. He knows how to make the the necessities of historical writing actually work. I did feel that the Ormel subplot, uh, it, it did feel like a bit tacked on. Did feel a bit uh, dodgy there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but one thing you liked, Sophie. Oh, uh, one thing I did like. Um, I don't know. That, uh, the very, the, the dad, um, monologue the dad poem really surprisingly hit um it hit different um when he was basically saying hey i'm about to go do a duel i know my um, path is righteous um and uh dad author of my blood um you you will raise your um you will raise me above your head and or will raise yourself above my head and um that both managing to um make me think of both a, a little boy being lifted up above his dad just going you know yay daddy and also at the same time being almost crowned by um the dad because he's still being raised above himself so his hands are above him as if he is um you know honoring a little crown on his head of justice, of honor, etc., and I was like, "That's a really nice line." That one just hit different comparatively. That and the gardener. I'll have to second you. It's the rather high poetic gem to page ratio in this. Maybe it's not as interconnected as something like Romeo and Juliet is, but you know there are a lot of. 
gems in here that you that, quite understandably if you go onto poetry websites you'll find a lot of monologues from this play plucked out of context and just put there as standalone things which is like a bit of a shame because um uh, the context makes each delivery, or at least the context could make each delivery so different. So, um, like, having lost it, it becomes a different gem. I guess that is kind of the point of a play anyway. You're, you're given a, a little, I guess, an opal, and depending on which light you shine it under, you get different shades, and that's what makes it interesting. Um, which also makes it very difficult to study as uh, as a student because you're just going, well, what if it's this way? What if it's that way? It's like you need a proper, like, solid through line for teenagers to understand this. Took me a... I, I, mean, to fair, I don't think teenagers are given this specific play to go through. Yeah, not, not as much, not as often. But still, I would have liked that solid, uh, you know, flow through of, of theme and exact... You are, this person is evil and this person is not, like, ah! Uncertainty is a crime. So you're saying that you wish Shakespeare had been a bit more like a Marvel movie? Oh. I'll, 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 I, I, I plead the fifth, I guess, as Americans say. Do they have that right in Japan or do they just beat you harder? I don't know. I don't know, and I'm a little too afraid to check. This is this is how you must know you're right, Sophie. Don't don't put it off. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that was Richard the Second. Next time we will be reading Christopher Marlowe's Edward the Second, a history play by Shakespeare's best frenemy. Will it be more acceptable to the panel than Tamburlaine was? Mm, time will tell. This is the king who gets a red-hot poker shoved up his ass. Does uh. that entice you? <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.